you are about to listen to Is It Possible to Do a Partial Teshuva from the Hilchas Teshuva Bootcamp. This is part 8 of The Lost Art of Teshuva. All of the Shmuzin as well as many series that deal with real life issues are available on the Shmooze.com or on the Shmooze app available for iPhone or Android. That's www.theshmuz.com or by phone at Kol HaLashon 718-906-6461. The Gemara in Avodah Zorah, Dav Yud Zayin, Amun Alf, brings down a fascinating event. Hatanya, the Brisa, teaches us, Amr Olav, Rabbi Lozabar Dodia. We learned about this individual called Rebbe Elozabar Dodia. He did not leave a single prostitute in the entire world that he did not live with. I doubt the Gemara means this literally, but clearly he was a man who was very, very involved in his activities. Anyone that he was aware of, he made it his business to be with. And this was his name, his fame, his reputation. Pam Achas, the Gemara tells us one time, He heard about a certain prostitute who was in an island. She used to demand an entire purse of gold coins for her for her payment. As soon as he heard about it, he went and crossed over seven rivers and offered her the money and was with her. During the actual act, she passed gas. Amra, she said, just like this, gas is not going to go back to where it came from. They're not going to accept him, Bichuva. Clearly not words that this woman should have uttered. Clearly not something that she was osagadaite, she was thinking about. We have to assume that these were words that were planted in her mind by Hashem. She was directed to say these words to be a signal, to be a sign to this Rabbi that they will not accept him, Bichuva. What was his reaction? He immediately left. He went and sat between the mountains and he cried out, Mountains, mountains and valleys, ask, beg for me, Rachmim. Amru, apparently the mountains and valleys, answered, Before we could ask for you, we have to ask for ourselves. He turns and says, Heaven and earth, Beg for me mercy. They too answered, we can't help you. He turned to the sun and the moon, please beg mercy. Beg mercy, they too said, we can't. He turned to the stars, please beg mercy. They too said, we cannot help. And then he uttered these words, The matter is dependent upon me. It is up to me. It is in my hands, only in my hands. He placed his head between his knees. He began crying and crying and crying until he literally died from that emotion. A heavenly voice came out and said, Dudya is prepared for Olam Haba. Tosas explains, whenever you hear that expression, Mizuman prepared for the world to come, it means without judgment. All of us typically, 
will stand judgment, will stand din, will stand judgment, and then we'll hopefully gain our portion in the world to come. Muzumin l'chayel mabah means prepared immediately. He doesn't need judgment, doesn't need Gehenim, nothing directly into Ganeidin. When Rebbe heard about this, Bacha Rebbe, Rebbe Huda Nasi, the Machaber of Mishnayis, began crying. The Ammar, he said, There are some people who take many, many years to acquire their world to come. There are some who acquire their world in but a very short moment. It's not enough for the Baal so that they accept him. But they call him this honorary title, Rebbe. Yehuda Nasi was making an observation that he was called Mina Shamayim. From the heavens they called him Rebbe Elozabar Dudya, the master of Dudya. And that is the Gemara. Now, in Shmuz number three, we discussed this Gemara at length, and it's worth spending some time listening to that. But I'd like to right now focus on one particular point. And that point is, we're dealing with a man who clearly is not lazy. We're dealing with a man who's very driven, very motivated, albeit for inappropriate matters, but he's not a lazy man. He had this reputation of not leaving a single woman that he wasn't with. And then when he hears about this one person in some island, he passes seven naros, goes through a very difficult journey, passes over seven rivers, takes, gathers together his money for a full purse of gold coins, and he's very, very dedicated to his activities. He's not a man who's flippant. He's not a man who just whatever, what we would call a baltaiva, you know, just lazy and indifferent and just gets caught up. He's a man who's pursuing a lifestyle. He's known with a reputation as a man who doesn't leave a single zona in the world. Obviously, he assumed that this was appropriate, this was proper. He chose this lifestyle. Now, that being said, he's in a moment of passion, and a very unusual statement is said, Rabbalozbar Dojia will not be accepted with tshuva. Okay, very unusual, very gripping, very startling. But all of a sudden, he turns around and changes so radically, he drops his lifestyle, leaves it on a dime, begs mercy from the heavens and the earth, sees that they can't help. He says the words, and he puts his head between his knees, begins crying and crying, does the ultimate tshuva. A tshuva to the extent that he literally dies from it, and a baskol comes out and says he is prepared for Alam Haba. And the question is, what changed? This is not a person who just woke up yesterday. Clearly he knew that these things were wrong. He didn't go to yeshiva. He didn't go to Ar Sameach for the long course in Judaism. The minute she said those words to him, he turned on a dime and reversed roles, put his head between his knees and began crying, which means that he knew at the core of his essence that what he was doing was wrong all along. If he didn't know it, there's nothing in her words that could have changed his understanding of life. But clearly these were concepts and understandings that he had deep in his essence, that he had suppressed, that he'd put down, that he sort of squashed down. She said one line and everything changed. But the question is, what changed? What hit him so? 
what struck him so that he literally changed his entire life and dramatically improved his eternity. And I believe the answer is that this man struck bottom. He understood there's no lower than this. As a matter of fact, the Marsha explains to us that this Gemara is actually an illustration of the antithesis of holiness. Every day we say that we love Hashem, we love Hashem with all of our heart, ready to give up our life with all of our money, everything that we have. Says Marsha, this man did that on the flip side. He spent total, huge amounts of money. He went to every effort. He risked his life. Passing seven rivers was a risky business. What he was doing was he was adduk. He was clinging to Tumah, clinging to the opposite of holiness. And says the Marsha, had he died at that point, he would have died like a behemoth. When an animal dies, the soul doesn't return to Shemayim. When Elsie the cow dies, the neshama evaporates. No more, nothing. It's just whatever. The nefesh of the behemoth just disintegrates. He had so eradicated all holiness within him that had he died at that moment, before he did tshuva, says the Marsha, he would have died like a behemoth, like an animal. His neshama would have been eradicated. There was nothing left. Everything holy had been obliterated. There was nothing left. And what he understood at that moment when she said those words to him was that he hit bottom. That's it. There's no lower to go and it struck him like a thunderbolt. The impact of it, the gravity of it hit him between the eyes and he understood. It's only up to me. It's all over. It doesn't get worse than this. And whilst this is an interesting illustration of the power of tshuva, to me I think there's an even more important lesson to learn from this. And that is the impact of realizations. There come certain moments during a person's lifetime when they realize, I blew it. But not in a little way, I blew it big time. And they're filled with remorse and they're filled with regret. And that is a very powerful emotion that if capitalized upon can drive a person, can move a person to a tremendous lifestyle change, to change the way they act, the way they think. And that is a very, very beautiful concept, but something that's not that common. I've often thought about the fact that a Balchuva has a tremendous advantage over most people when it comes to Yom Kippur. When a person becomes a Balchuva, and it's their first Yom Kippur, or maybe their second Yom Kippur, and they're standing in shul, there's an awful lot on their mind. Oh my goodness, Shabbos, Kashris, Znus. There are many, many things that I've done before. Maybe I was a Tinoch Shanishpur. Maybe I was not held accountable. Maybe yes, maybe no. But the bottom line is, there's an awful lot to clean up. And when a person stands in shul on Yom Kippur as a new Balchuva, there's a tremendous amount of remorse, regret. There's a powerful Chuva process there. And that really catapults them to great heights. But after a while, five years into the process, ten years into the process, it's no longer the same. Shabbos, I'm keeping. Kosher, I'm keeping. I'm leaving a Torah lifestyle. So, tshuva is no longer so accessible. It's no longer so easy to feel the remorse. And if a person is from, from, from birth, then it's even more so. 
listen, my whole life I've been keeping Shabbos. My whole life I've been eating kosher. So <clears throat> I come to Yom Kippur. I try to take it seriously. I try to awaken myself. But at the end of the day, <clears throat> listen, it's, you know, I don't have that much to cry about. There's not that much for me to get excited about. And for many of us, <clears throat> when we walk into Yom Kippur, it is difficult to be ma'or ourselves, <clears throat> difficult to awaken ourselves, and difficult to really feel <clears throat> what Shuvah is all about. And what I'd like to address today in this session is awakening ourselves and beginning to feel what Shuvah is about. But before, they, before I do that, I want to make one very important point. Something that the Roshiva told us many, many times. The Roshiva would explain to us that it's permitted to learn Musar on Shabbos. Now in Yeshiva, when we learned Musar, it was a very heartfelt Seder. And oftentimes, if a fellow was into it, there'd be tears, crying, Real remorse, real regret, certainly during a Sarashimei Tshuva. And the question is, on Shabbos, one is not allowed to say, Dvarim HaMetzarim, things that cause tsar, things that cause pain, one is not allowed to express on Shabbos. Yet one is allowed to learn Musr, even though one will cry. And the Roshiv explained to us why. And that is because when a person learns Musr, even though a person is crying, even though there's remorse and regret, it's a powerful cleansing process. It's a growth process. And I feel simcha. Even though, granted, I wish I never had done it. Granted, I wish I'd never been involved in this from the beginning. But now that I'm here, this process of tshuva, this process of learning Musa, this process of regret, is a very, very powerful catharsis. It's a <clears throat> cleansing process. It cleans me up. And it brings me to a tremendous sense of joy. Because I'm closer to Hashem, I'm a different human being, I've grown, and there's a tremendous simcha that a person feels, therefore one's allowed to learn it on Shabbos. And that perspective is very important when it comes to tshuva. Many times people are reluctant, I'm kippur is coming, it's heavy, it's going to get me down, it's going to get me depressed. If a person uses the tshuva appropriately, if a person uses Yom Kippur appropriately, it's not depressing, it's invigorating, it's empowering. A person has a tremendous simcha. Is it heavy? It's very heavy. It's dealing with things that I usually don't deal with, but it's a very joyful process. It's a difficult process, because we human beings don't like to be very critically analytical about ourselves. I'll look at you very critically, I'll watch your flaws and dissect them and tell you exactly what you've done wrong. But to take that mirror and hold it up to myself and to be very, very critically honest and analyze my flaws and my faults is something I'm not comfortable with. In fact, if you're a big student of liberal psychology, they'll tell you, don't do it. You'll crack. You're too fragile. You're, you're, too, you're too delicate. Don't, don't do that self-observation stuff because who knows what will come out of it. Now the reality is there are some people who are fragile. And if in fact you are, and you're really not psychologically whole, then maybe it's something you have to be very careful with. But assuming that you are a balanced individual, and the Torah is written for psychologically balanced, healthy people, then the process of self-observation is a very, very invigorating, very, very strengthening process. It's difficult to do because it's difficult to hold up that mirror and look at myself and to recognize what I've done right and what I've done wrong. But doing that process is a tremendous growth process. 
It is particularly hard because there might be moments when I see things that are ugly. If you really work on yourself and you really see character traits, behaviors, modes of thinking, you may look at them and say, that is really ugly. And that is a hard thing to admit, that it's me, it's ugly, it's a part of me. But knowing that I can clean that up, knowing that I can get rid of that, knowing that I can change is a dramatic, dramatic, empowering concept. I knew a man when he was 20 years old who was arrogant. When I say arrogant, I mean a buffoon, a full of himself, bombastic, I am God's gift to humanity. The same man, when he was 40, was no longer arrogant. As a matter of fact, humble. An unov, humble, and a different human being. Had he died, Rahman al-Sana, at 20, for eternity, he would have been a bombastic, arrogant buffoon, and he would have been the laughing stock in Shemayim, because as you are, as you leave this earth, is who you are for eternity. The concept of WYSIWYG, we've discussed previously, what you see is what you get. That would have been him for eternity. But he spent 20 years growing, 20 difficult years looking at himself, being critically honest with himself. And at 40, he was a different human being. And if he were to die at that point, for eternity, he would be a different human being. The work is difficult. It takes motivation. It takes drive. But it's very, very simcha-related work. It's work that brings a person to a tremendous amount of joy. And it's important to remember that because the process is not always that easy. Now, with that as an introduction, I'd like to analyze why it is that for most of us it is very difficult to do tshuva. And I believe, as we've discussed in the last session, there are a number of issues. What I'd like to focus on right now is the understanding of a sin in our mindset in our perspective. I personally try to be careful when it comes to obeying the laws of the road. I try not to speed. After all, we are welcomed visitors in this country. There are laws that are created for the good of mankind, for the good of the population, for safety. So as a rule, I don't speed. But imagine for a minute you heard the following. Last night, on the way back from the shoes, it was getting late, so I put the pedal to the metal and I got pulled over doing 70 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. Speeding, got a ticket. What would you think of me? Would you think of me any less? Would you think of me in any bad sense? I'd imagine, you know, whatever, okay, listen, you know, the rabbi was speeding. Okay, what's, what's the big deal? 70 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone is not a big deal. And I think that, for us, is the problem with our doing tshuva. For most of us, the concept of a chait, the concept of sinning, we view sort of like speeding, you know, like, listen, I'm not a tzaddik, I'm not a great, great person, but at the end of the day, I I sin, but at the end of the day, it's not that big of a deal, I I, I speed, I sin, you know, I speak a little Lashon Hara, maybe I'm not so careful about Shabbos, maybe I look at things that I shouldn't be looking at, Uh, certainly I'm not learning as much Torah as I can, and, you know, I I admit, I... uh, I speed, and sometimes I do 65, sometimes 70, maybe even 75. You know, I sin. And as long as you view sins as speeding, as it's not a big deal, you will never be able to do tshuva. Because at the end of the day, it's not a big deal. He just went a little bit over the line. 
a little bit, nothing to get all bent out of shape out of. And to bring a little different perspective on this, I'd like to focus on something that we discussed in a previous schmooze. Shmuz entitled title, Tidal Waves in Midas Adin, where Chazal tell us a very interesting observation. <coughs> Chazal tell us that by all rights, Sari Menu should have lived another 27 years. She should have lived, excuse me, she should have lived another 38 years. Sari Menu died at 127. She had 38 years cut out of her life. And why is it that she lost 38 years of her life? Because she said a particular expression to Avram Avinu. <clears throat> the entire event with Hagar, <clears throat> Sari Menu felt that Avram did not stand up for her honor. <clears throat> and she said an expression, Yishpot Hashem Let Hashem be the judge between you and I, <clears throat> whether you acted appropriately. The Matnas Kahuna on <clears throat> the Medrash Rambah explains what she was saying was, let's enter into Midas Adin. Let Din, <clears throat> let judgment be the final call here, whether you've acted appropriately with me. And the Matnas Kuna says that she gave over the din to Shemayim. Apparently, she was on the level where she was able to affect things in the way that Shemayim looked at her. And because of that, she switched from the system of Rachamim, of mercy, to the system of din. And when Surah Imenu was judged with the strict system of judge justice, din, she ended up losing 38 years of her life. And the question that begs being asked on this medrash is that Sari Menu was about as close to a perfect woman as we can imagine. She's a woman who lived her entire life dedicated to her husband, dedicating to spreading the word of Hashem, dedicating to helping others, the pillar of chesed. And it's hard to imagine that she did such egregious, horrible sins that even if... <coughs> It was entered into with Mida Sadin, even if strict justice was the measure used to weigh her life with, it's hard to imagine she did anything that severe that she warranted losing 38 years of her life. And to understand this, I think we need a different perspective on the capacity of a human and thereby the responsibility of a human. I have a mushal that I think is very apropos. And that is, if you imagine what it's like sitting in the cockpit of a 747 jet. Tremendous amount, an entire array of knobs and levers and different buttons and things. And and so complex, so complicated. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. Imagine I told you the following. There was a man, pretty good guy, not a bad guy at all. And uh, he had a drink. All right, truth be told, he had more than one drink. Three, four drinks. And he showed up to work. All right, listen, he shouldn't have done it. No one would tell you he's a big tzaddik for doing it. But he showed up to work just a bit uh, intoxicated. Not falling on the floor drunk, but, you know, a little off. But he went about his day, and he did his job. And, you know, but unfortunately, because he was a little intoxicated, he made a little little mistake. Okay, we're not going to get bent out of shape. We're not going to go arrest the man, except for one problem. What he did for a living was a pilot of that 747, and he crashed the fully loaded plane into the sea, killing all occupants because he was drunk. Would you say, come on, big deal, don't make such a 
fuss over it. The bottom line is, if you are the pilot of that plane, it is a grave and serious responsibility. You don't put a child into the cockpit of a 747. And a drunk man cannot ever, ever be excused for getting behind the wheel of that plane. The reality is, as we discussed in the last session, when Hashem created the human, Hashem placed us in a position of extraordinary power and therefore extraordinary responsibility as well. We fly the plane, the plane of my life, this fully loaded 747, which I am the pilot of and I am responsible for. If I bring it to great heights, it's my accomplishment. If I crash it, I'm also held accountable for that. And there is a very, very grave and real responsibility for that. What I think we see from this Chazal about Sari Menu is that even Sari Menu, if she had to enter with real, real din, with absolute precision and justice, even she could never come clean because that is the grave responsibility of the human. The human was given such potential, such ability to accomplish that if even the greatest human were judged with strict din, strict judgment, there's no human who could ever escape. And because of that, Hashem did not create the world with Midas din With the measure of just judgment, the world could not exist. Therefore, Hashem created the world with Midas Arachamim, because only with mercy can the world continue. But this concept of understanding the greatness of the human what a human can accomplish, and ultimately what a human being is therefore held accountable for, is a key understanding in relating to the entire concept of tshuva. The one question that a human being can never, ever stop asking himself is this question, am I great? Am I a great human being? Am I an accomplished person? Am I a person for whom it was worthy to create heavens and earth? Am I the human being who flies at 747? And am I the human being who writes on the Megillah? Who writes in my autobiography every day's entry? And it's an entry, a page worth of material that's worthy to stand for eternity? If CNN were filming a day in my life, and the camera crew were there, gathered with the sound crew, and all of the lighting, would I act the same way as I now act? But the reality is, our life is being filmed. For eternity, my life will be shown, not in the picture in Shemayim, but in me. In the essence of who I am, will reflect all that I've accomplished, all that I am. And understanding the grave responsibility, the amount that a human being can accomplish and thereby how grave and serious a hate is, radically changes the way we approach things and the way we view life. Typically, when a person approaches Yom Kippur, even if they get serious, and even if they think about the godless Adam, the greatness of the human, they'll say something like, okay, I hear you, I admit it, I have a flaw. There's one area of weakness. But listen, it's only one area. One area, you know, I would love to get all bent over on Yom Kippur and clap and cry. I, I, I yearn for that. I would love it to get closer to Hashem that by, by that. But 
the reality is I, I have only one area. I admit it's a sin. I, you know, I thought about it. It's not like speeding. It really is a sin. But it's only one area. It's not like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so bad. So it, it's difficult. Shari makes one very telling point. He says, if you have an Evid, if you have a servant who says as follows, I obey everything my master says except one area, he's not a servant. He's on his own. He's autonomous. He's on his own accord. He's not serving his master. He's his own boss. If a person says there's one area that I, whatever, I don't work on that. I can't work on that. It's too hard for me. It's my area of weakness, whatever it may be. He is a rebellious individual, rebelling against Hashem. He's not accepting Hashem's sovereignty. And each Avera that he does is a separate, independent sin. Even if it's not such a big deal, it's one sin, one day, a second sin, another day, another sin, a third day, four, five, six, ten, twenty, a hundred. And the Shari Chuv explains to us that the way you make a rope is by taking many, many thin, thin strands. If you look at a rope that's an inch thick, it's only made up of very, very thin strands, but each one woven into the next, woven into the next, woven into the next, until you have a thick rope that can hang a man. <clears throat> Explain to Shari Tshuva, that's the way Chatoim works. Even if you only have one sin, and even if you're not considered a morate, a rebellious person because of it, it tends to build up and becomes thicker and thicker and thicker, and therefore <clears throat> it's very, very worthwhile to do tshuva. But I think the reality is that this concept that I have only one weakness, and therefore it's difficult for me to really use the Yom Kippur properly, is delusional. And I think if we think about it, I think we'll quickly find that it's not one area, but many, many areas that we are extraordinarily lacking in. And let me begin with a few, almost a little bit of a listing of some of the common areas that almost all of us are poshea in, that are involved in, because maybe it'll help us... Wake up a little bit. There is a mitzvah say in the Torah called V'yahavata l'reacha kamocha. You shall love your friend like yourself. Now here's the problem with that mitzvah say in the Raisa. The problem is that all the Rishonim say that it's basically for real. It's not a joke. It's not a metaphor. It's not like some you know sort of a nice expression. You know, put it on a Hallmark card and send it to your <clears throat> to your loved ones. It's real. What that means is there's an obligation upon me to love every Jew. Whether it's as intensely and fully as myself or not is a source of debate, but there is an obligation for me to feel a tremendous sense of warmth, kindness, love for every other Jew. Is there a person we know who can honestly say, those are my feelings all day long. Every time I see a Jew, wow, Baruch Hashem, I'm so happy to meet him. Oh, a Jew... Wow, what can I do to help you? Wow, I'm so glad to see you. Some Jews we feel that way. If he's a very, very important person, if he's a wealthy individual, maybe a big Talmud Chacham, yeah. The Meshulach who comes to my door, all right. But it gets a lot worse if we're really critically honest. Because how many times have we felt, you know, that person is a... Geek, the weird. In fact, they bother me. Their presence, you know, but not for not for wrong reasons. But I have to be honest. I, I hate the person. 
not, I'm not going to do anything bad to him, but I just, I really dislike that person. But I have cause. The reason why I dislike him, he's a geek, he's a nerd. To be honest with you, he's really not my type of person. And I really, I hate him. I'll be honest, I hate him. Okay, so what am I going to do? I hate him. There is a low in Torah called lo sisna bilvavecha. Don't hate your friend in your heart. And what that means is if a Jew harbors that sense of dislike, that sense of hatred for any Jew, even if that Jew smells, even if that Jew belongs to a different political party than I, even if that Jew is a Mizrachinik, or a Hasidish person, or a Litvak, or an Amoritz, or any other type of category that I could put them in, and therefore it permits me to hate them, I violate that losasei. But it's so easy, just like that. You fail to fulfill the mitzvah of Avtalecha Kamocha anytime you don't feel Jews pain, anytime you don't feel their joy. You violate the losasei anytime you feel a sense of disdain of, ugh, I don't like that person, even if they're radically different than me, and even if in fact they are obnoxious. The say still applies. What about another one? What about V'yahavta Hashem Alakecha B'chol Levavcha U'v'chol Nafshecha Hashem, I love you with all of my heart. I'm willing to give up my life with all of my money. There's nothing more precious to me than your love. How many Jews can honestly say, that is me? Hashem, I love you with an abundant, powerful love. But there's an obligation upon me to feel that. We say it twice a day in Shema. <clears throat> twice a day in Shema, we say the words, Hashem, I love you that way. And I'm afraid that if we're paying attention, we recognize that it's Eidus Sheker. It's a false testimony. Because to be honest with you, I don't think about Hashem very much at all. And if I do, the sense of love, powerful, Hashem, I love you, is very, very debatable. You ever get into a fight with your wife or your husband? And you say things now for good cause. She said it again and again, and I finally let her have it, but she deserved it. She really had it coming to her. And I violated that Losa say called Onos Dvorim, oppressing with words, probably Malbim Pnei Chaver Barabim, made her cry, etc., etc. And you quickly see that that hate is very, very easy to violate. My kids know that I try to be careful around Purim time to speak very little to my father. A day or two before Purim, I'll call, but I'll be quick on the phone, and my children understand why it is. Because one Purim, maybe five years ago, my father said something that put me in a difficult situation. My father is a yekka, and very proper, and he certainly, Baruch Shem, approves of what I do, but he said an expression on the phone, maybe don't get drunk this Purim. And my father's mindset, even though, granted, that's, one way to Mekayim Adelayada, there are other ways, and it's not really, maybe don't get drunk. And I found myself in a real quandary. The real quandary is because if you study the way the Rishonim expressed the mitzvah saseh of Kibar Av, it's considered a tzivoy. I am commanded to obey my father's statements. If my father says to me, take out the garbage, it's not an option. It's not, hmm, let me think about it. There is a commandment upon me to obey his words. And five years ago or so, when my father said, you know, don't get drunk on Purim, I found myself in a difficult situation because I had a commandment from my father not to do something. Now, Halavai was such a tzaddik growing up, and Halavai that I really mechanic keep it out fully all the time, 
But that reality struck me. How many people honestly can say, keep it out of aim, I got that one taken care of. Listen, my parents, I treat them fully with respect. If you are an American brought up in the American world, brought up in a Western society, I guarantee you do not treat your parents with the respect the way the Torah commands us to. Watch the way Orientals speak to their parents. Watch the way people from other societies treat their parents, and you'll understand quickly that we are Americans, we are westernized in our culture, and we very, very easily trample on those of Averis. Anybody ever cheat in business? Anybody ever falsify the tax form just a tad, just a little bit? Forget Gezel. Forget Sheker. One simple question. Do you honestly believe that God runs the world? If there's a Borei Olam, if there's a creator of this world, who's the Manig, who runs this world, and I believe that he sets the amount of money that I am to make this year on Rosh Hashanah, how could I possibly steal? How could I possibly lie? How could I sort of change the deal? Well, you know, I really sort of meant kind of... And I change around the deal in a business situation. The reason is, because there's no God, there's no manig of the world, I'm in charge, and that, my friends, is kfira. When I cheat in business, and I don't mean reaching into somebody else's pocket and stealing money, when I change the deal, when I falsify things, when I speak about my product in a way that's really, really not true, when my heart tells me that the words that are coming out of my lips are not emis, what I'm engaging in is a total, utter act of kfira, denying Hashem's existence, and denying Hashem as the one who runs the world, denying the basic tenets of our religion. Anybody ever make a blessing without kavanah? Baruch Atta, blessed be you, Hashem, present and accounted for, Elokeinu, our God, Melech Ha'olam, the King of the universe, Shakol. That everything came into existence with your words. How many times a day have I said that bracha with the right kavana? Listen, we're Orthodox Jews. We make a hundred brachas a day. One hundred a day. Would you like to venture a guess how many of those are without kavana? How many bracha levatalas? How many times do we make the wrong bracha or mumble a bracha or spit out the bracha in a way that we use the name of Hashem in vain, that is a full losa say in the Torah. It's a full negative prohibition in the Torah to use Hashem's name in vain. How about saying Shema without paying attention? How about dominating without paying attention? How about not making brachas at all? How about not benching? Anybody ever miss a mincha? Maybe a shachras? I know a fellow once told me, quite honestly, he's having a little trouble dominating. You know, he doesn't really daven. He didn't mean so well. He meant not dominating. Brings his film to work, tries to make sure he puts it on before Shkia. Now, Baruch Hashem, that's not most of us. But how many of us can really say, I daven and I know that I'm speaking in front of the Creator of the heavens and the earth? We're lucky if we actually pay attention to the words of the Siddur half the time. But that means the rest of the time we're spaced out. What a chil Hashem, I'm wearing tefillin, standing in front of the Creator of the heavens and the earth, and Hashem is waiting for my bakoshes, waiting for my request, and I'm spaced out. I'm in some other planet, and I'm not thinking about the Rambam's kasha. 
What an open Chilul <coughs> Hashem. What about not making brachas after using the bathroom or not appreciating <coughs> the fact that I can use all of my physical <coughs> properties well? What about a fact, the fact of appreciating all that Hashem has given me? <coughs> feeling wealthy, feeling rich, feeling the brach of being born into this generation, saying, <coughs> Baruch Hashem, thank you Hashem for creating me and giving me all of these things, giving me fruit to eat giving me sights to see, letting me enjoy this life, giving me the opportunity to grow. And if you're not there yet, here's a very simple one that I use on a regular basis. Anytime I feel even a tad, slight tad of arrogance, I open up shafts to oh, just about any old place, and I say, okay, tell me pshat. And here is a very frightening concept. Baruch Hashem, I spent many years in yeshiva. I have very little excuses. Chaz de Hashem, I know how to learn. At least a little bit. There is no excuse in the world why I don't know that. There's no excuse in the world for me not to have mastered shas. At least, not with total in, certainly to know it, to understand it. What is my excuse? Well, you know, life is difficult, I'm busy, I'm doing things. And those excuses are cute, but every once in a while, when you're critically honest with yourself, and you stare yourself in the eye and say, what if it really mattered to me? What if I was really driven? What if I was really motivated? Couldn't I have mastered Mishnayas? Couldn't I have mastered Chumish? Who am I fooling? I know math. I do very well in business. I clearly have a brain. Who am I fooling that I can't master this material? I can't know this. It's too hard for me to learn. Too hard for me to learn because I really don't value it. I really don't care. I haven't really set it as my life goal. And when you do enough thinking on, t- on Yom Kippur, I think you realize a very key understanding. And that is we have a very different way of viewing our lives and our potential excuse me, than the way the Torah views us. And I have a muscle that I think helps a little bit. On a personal note, <clears throat> I try to stay in shape. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and one of the activities I do is from time to time I run. And Baruch Hashem, despite now being, I guess, heading towards uh, middle age or old age or wherever I'm <clears throat> exactly holding, I could still run a pretty decent five miles, nine minutes a mile. And Chazdei Hashem, I'm reasonably <clears throat> happy with that. Until I think about the fact that if you ask the average high school track member, what does he do the five mile in? And then you find out that he does it in a time that would embarrass me dramatically. That would make me look like a fat, old slob. And you recognize that there's a radical difference between his time and mine. Now, it doesn't really bother me, because when I run, it's strictly for fitness, to have energy, to be able to serve Hashem better. So I'm not really concerned whether my time is nine minutes a mile or five and a half minutes a mile. But that's because I'm a recreational fitness buff. Let's say at a certain point in life I woke up and realized that the entire reason for existence, the only reason we were put on the planet was to get fit, be in shape, be the best runner we could be. What would I feel then? I would feel such remorse. What did I do? I let myself get out of shape. I let myself get flabby. I let myself get... Look what happened to you. I could have been running a six-minute mile, five-and-a-half-minute mile. Look what I'm doing, nine-minute mile. I feel terrible. 
The reason why I think that's a good muscle is because most of us take the attitude, we're okay. We're recreational of the Hashem. I'm a very busy person and I'm also a servant of God. Amongst my many different activities, I also work on my learning, on my midos, on my davening. I'm a recreational servant of Hashem. But there will come a certain moment when we'll get it. There'll be a certain moment for all of us, unfortunately only probably after we leave this earth, but we'll finally get it and we'll understand the reason for existence. We'll understand why Hashem put us on this earth. We'll understand the potential we were given. And we'll understand how great we could have been had we really, really applied ourselves. Had I said to myself, I'm going to be the best I could really be. We'll then understand what it is I could have been. And then we'll understand the damage of being a recreational Eved Hashem. In the world of running, in the world of fitness, it doesn't matter because I wasn't created to be the ultimate athlete. But in the world of reality, that's why we're put on a planet, to grow, to accomplish. And if I ever were able to really marshal my energies, put my forward, thrusting drive into what I'm doing, I would have been now and for eternity a very different human being. And that cognition is probably one of the most important to understand when a person thinks about tshuva. One of the greatest problems with Averas are they build up. Like plaque, they build up and build up. And it's not just the sin itself, but it makes it harder to appreciate who I am. It makes it harder to do mitzvahs. It makes me more physical. It makes it harder for me to feel Hashem's presence. It makes it harder for me to daven. And if I could peel it off layer after layer after layer, I could feel Hashem's presence. I could daven better. I could learn more. I could understand why I'm on this planet. But tshuva is difficult. Tshuva is a hard thing to do. <clears throat> the Peleoites lets us understand that there's one special chesed that Hashem has. <clears throat> Hashem created us with two natures, and Hashem knew that we would blow it, if it could be. <clears throat> there's no human being ever created who will never sin. It doesn't exist. And therefore Hashem created this system called tshuva. But it's a system that works differently than most than you understand, that we typically deal with. I'll explain to you what I mean. In ancient Greece, the concept of bankruptcy did not exist. And what that means is, if a father owed money, he paid it. And if he couldn't pay it, his entire family, that means his wife, his children, and all servants were brought into debt slavery. The father could die, the child will still be a slave because the child was obligated to pay the debt of the father. In more modern times, there was an entity called debtor's prison. If you couldn't pay your debt, you weren't made to be a slave, but you were put into prison. You couldn't pay your debt. With the advent of the modern economy, something has come about called bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is the understanding that if a person is sincere, not abusing the system, there is a concept that let the debtors get what they can out of it. So for instance... If a person owes X amount of money and he really can't pay, the judge will sit and come up with a verdict and he'll say, at least give the debtors 10 cents on the dollar, 5 cents on the dollar. The debtors will get something out of the assets and this person gets a chance to start over. And if you understand bankruptcy, bankruptcy is a very key ingredient in a successful market economy 
it allows people to take good, cautious risks, but to actually go forth on a venture, knowing full well if they succeed, they'll reach great heights. And if not, worst case scenario, it's a difficult situation, but at least the people who've loaned their money, the people they owe money will get something out of it, and there's a fresh, clean start. And bankruptcy used appropriately, used properly as it was created for, is a very good concept. Peleot explains that concept of bankruptcy also applies to Avodah Hashem. Hashem understands that we do Averis. We do sins that are very, very egregious, very serious, and very, very damaging. But Hashem also understands that it's unlikely that we're really going to reach true remorse. It's unlikely that we're really going to understand the depth of the Avera to the extent that we should. <clears throat> Granted, there was once a Rebbe Lazar Dudia who reached down to the core of his essence and dug down and really, really felt remorse. But the reality is, for most of us, <clears throat> it's very hard. And therefore, Hashem accepts less than full value. If you can't reach full remorse, 50%. If you can't reach 50%, 30%. If you can't do that, pay back 10%, at least 5%. And the Peleoitz explains, much like bankruptcy, Hashem will accept partial amounts as full payment. If you can't reach total harata, and you can't beat your chest crying with bitter, bitter tears flowing down your cheeks, at least feel something. And if it's a tefillah that finds chen, finds favor in Hashem's eyes, it says in Peleoitz, Hashem will accept partial amounts as full payment, 20%, 10%, maybe 5%, and the tshuva works and the Aveira is gone. And if you think it doesn't make sense, you're 100% correct. But that is a special, special mercy that Hashem has upon us. I think it is a very powerful lesson for us to learn from Rabbi Elizabeth Dudia. The lesson to learn from Rabbi Elizabeth Dudia is that every once in a while, it's very, very good to hit bottom. The man hit bottom, felt it, and understood the gravity of what he had done. He felt the awesomeness of what he had destroyed, and that's what propelled him to the heights. That's a tremendous bracha that most of us don't really get. If a person's about tshuva, he may have it. If a person really did a very serious, obvious avera, he may feel it. But the reality is that for most of us, it is rare that we're going to feel that. It's rare that we understand it. Hence, it's somewhat difficult for us to do tshuva. If you want to fully, fully understand the power of tshuva, Listen to one observation in that Gemara. At the very end of the Gemara, the Gemara says, Bacha Rebbe. Rebbe Yehuda Nasi began crying when he heard this event with Rebbe Lozabedudia. He heard this Rebbe Lozabedudia, who had been on such a level of depravity, had reached such heights and he began crying. And you might ask, why is he crying? Tremendous simcha. Look what this Jew has done for himself. This Jew has changed his life, changed his eternity. Rebbe Yehuda Nasi should be dancing. And I believe the answer to why Rabbi Yehuda Nasi was crying was because he took it as a patch and put him to himself. What he saw is what a Jew can accomplish in what but one moment. If this Rabbi Lazar put his head between his knees and began crying and crying and changed himself so, said Rabbi Yehuda Nasi to himself, that's what a person can accomplish in a one small amount of time. Have I utilized my time to that extent? Have I capitalized on the opportunity of life and it was a powerful lesson to Rabbi Huda Nasi that made him cry 
made him cry because he said it's not enough that they accept Bali Tshuva. They call them Rebbe. They give them that title of honor master. And Yehud Nasi took it as a Muslim lesson to what extent a human being can change, to what extent a Jew can make himself different. However, to do that requires a certain difficult self-honesty, a self-observation, being critically honest, looking at myself, but more than anything, understanding what I'm capable of. If Sarah Imenu was judged with Din, she could not stand. She lost 38 years of her life because Din, real judgment is so exacting because that's the potential of the human, that's the gravity of the situation because that's what Hashem gave us the ability to accomplish. And Sarah Imenu, the most perfect woman, could not escape unscathed. She lost 38 years of her life. And that's illustrative to us of the impact of our actions. The muscle to our life is like being behind the wheel in the cockpit of that 747. You don't show up to work drunk. And if you do, it's not whatever. If we live our life without paying attention, if we live our life without a plan, if we don't have a really solid understanding of why I'm here, what am I doing, what am I accomplishing, then I'm like that man who showed up to work and crashed the plane with 400 passengers into it. Crashing a human life is a travesty that's very difficult for us to imagine. But it takes a while to understand this. One of the great chassadim that Hashem grants us and gives us is this thing called tshuva, this ability to take a day like a Yom Kippur and change myself, make myself into a different human being if, if I can wake up. I'd like to close something that was mentioned in one of the previous shmuzim. It's actually a, a little bit of a sad story. It involves a, a certain gentleman, Barrett Robbins, who is a professional athlete who played for the Oakland Raiders. And it involves Super Bowl <clears throat> number 37, which was played on January 26, 2003. The reason why that particular Super Bowl and Barrett Robbins are mentioned in the same breath is because even though Barrett Robbins was slated to start in that game, and even though he was a key part of the Raiders team, Barrett Robbins didn't play in that game. Actually, Barrett Robbins woke up somewhere in Mexico about 4 p.m. on the Sunday when the game was already playing, realizing that he's miles and miles away in a different country sleeping over a hangover. You see, that Saturday night, Barrett Robbins, the Saturday night before the Super Bowl, decided to take a drive, ended up in Tijuana in a bar, began drinking, got drunk, and woke up out of his stupor at 4 p.m. the next day, realizing, oh my goodness, I blew it. The Super Bowl was played, and I wasn't there. And after the game, they interviewed him. And these were his words. I felt terrible. My teammates had worked so hard, I felt terrible. I mean, this was the biggest game of my life. Everything I'd worked for as a child, as a young man, as a collegiate athlete, then going into the pros, everything I'd worked for, and this was the biggest, biggest event. It was unbelievable to me. And my friends, what Barrett Robbins felt in that moment was a powerful sense of remorse, of karate, blew the biggest game of his life, and there was no reparations, no ability to make it up. 
And that pain, I dare say, is something we, Rahman will feel when we leave this earth. A powerful sense of remorse, of regret, of how could I be so foolish living my life like a drunk? How could I possibly do the things I did, say the things I said? What was I thinking? What was wrong with me? But that's the great secret. If I feel that sense, not later when it's too late, but now while I'm alive, there's a concept called tshuva. I could get rid of it. I could eradicate it, get rid of that sin, eradicate the damage. I could change and I could change the course of my existence and for eternity be a different person. Hashem gave us this koach to wake up. Hashem gave us this power to accomplish, to change ourselves. Hashem gave us a system called tshuva, but it requires waking up and using it. May Kodesh Baruch grant us the wisdom and ability to put this into practice. You've been listening to Is It Possible to Do a Partial Teshuva from the Hilchas Teshuva Boot Camp. This is part 8 of The Lost Art of Teshuva. This, as well as hundreds of other Shmooz audio, video, and articles are available on the Shmooz.com or on the Shmooz app available for iPhone or Android. That's www.theshmuz.com or by phone at Kol Halashon 718-906-6461.